Senhor. Well, last time I'm going to say this for a while. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We're in Genesis 49, and we will be finishing the book of Genesis today. It's been about a year and a half, so I always, always hate finishing a book. Um, we're going to go into Colossians next week, and uh, Mary Leela asked me uh, a while back, is there a connection between Genesis and Colossians? And I said, not that I know of, I just haven't preached through Colossians, and so I'm going to do that, you know. Uh, well, it happened to be this morning, Mary Leela, that I re- was reading through Colossians 1, and I saw a connection. But I'm not going to tell you what that connection is. So uh, you can begin looking in Colossians 1, and you might see the connection. Uh, we'll see. Genesis begins in the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden is a place where God's presence dwelt, and where blessing was known and experienced by Adam and Eve. This blessing was lost when they ate the forbidden fruit. It wasn't something magical about the fruit itself, but their insistence to go their own way, to be Lord of their own will, rather than submit their will to their covenant Lord. Because of that rebellion, God subjected this world, as beautiful and good as it was originally, to a curse. He subjected it to death. Nothing would be quite the same. Disease, famine, earthquakes, tsunamis, things that weren't there originally. The world was subjected to decay. Men and women would live their entire lives on the face of this planet in fear of dying. Because at the end of death in this life was the shadowy fear of an eternity apart from God's kindness and blessing. But while evil and suffering and death Were God's just punishment, God also began to proclaim to Adam and Eve a promise of the recovery of blessing. God would use a son of Eve to crush the head of Satan, and in so doing lift the curse. The fall into sin had been quick, seemingly effortless, but the redemption out of sin would prove far more difficult. The rest of the book of Genesis is really the beginning of God's promise of blessing. And now, and this is the title of this sermon, we have come to the end of the beginning of God's promise of blessing. God had made specific promises to Abraham. He promised to bless him. He promised to make him into a great nation. He promised to give him a land that would become a home of great blessing. And he promised to dwell with him again. 
But Abraham lived out his entire life not having received the fullness of those blessings. The promises given to Abraham were passed on to Isaac and then later to Jacob. They were heirs of these same promises. And they received them by supernatural grace and faith alone. So in Genesis we begin to see this pattern develop. God's people spend their lives hoping and waiting for God's blessing. And then they die. We've come to the end of the book of Genesis. How fitting that in our passage today, we will read about two funerals. Wedged between these two funerals will will be a fear of wrath. Unless God is able to conquer death, then God's blessing is not worth its weight in salt. And unless our faith enables us to face death and conquer our fears of death, it too is worthless. So that's where we are. Let's let's read uh, probably break this up in a couple sections, not read it all at once. We'll read uh, beginning in verse 28 of chapter 49 uh, and go through 33 right now. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers. In the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre. In the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field... And the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now mainly, out of convenience, more and more people are choosing to be cremated. The costs of burial are significantly higher than cremation. And in our mobile society, people have a diminished connection to any one location for their burial. But as we can see in these verses, the place of burial mattered greatly to the patriarchs. Jacob is emphatic. He wants to be buried with his fathers in the land of Canaan. And he cares so deeply about this that he gives to his children a command. And by the way, I've been around a lot of funerals. Usually whatever the dying person wants, that's what's done. He says, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers. He's very specific. He wants to be buried in the very cave in which Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and even his wife Leah were buried. Now, Jacob 
has personal affection for his family. Of course he does. But his desire at this point is more than personal affection. You see, otherwise, the love of his life was Rachel. And notice, she wasn't in this picture. She was not buried at this cave. Jacob is motivated by his hope that God would make Abraham's family into a great nation. Jacob is motivated by his hope that God would give to Abraham and his children a great land of blessing, the land of Canaan. And in his burial, Jacob symbolically points his descendants to these two great hopes. He makes clear to them that death itself will not prevent God from fulfilling these promises. He continues to have a hope in these promises even with his dying breath. And in his death, he calls his children and their children after them to place their trust in these same promises. You see, what Jacob says in this command is that there is nothing that matters more to him than his children abiding in the faith of these promises. Turn over to the book of Hebrews for a moment. Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 13 through 16. These, meaning the patriarchs, all died in faith. They died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Beautiful. We have no doubt what is going on in the heart of Jacob as he commands his children. He has a hope in a better country. This is the same hope that you and I possess as we believe in Jesus Christ. You see, our hope in eternal home is what joins us to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by the way, anybody who refuses this hope, even if they are in some way connected to God's people on earth, they will not have a place in the eternal feast. You see, being a physical descendant of Abraham is not enough. A Jewish child may hear the promise of blessing from his earliest days, but if he or she does not embrace that promise of blessing in faith, he will be just as lost as those outside the people of God. At the same time, God is able to grant faith to those outside the people of God and bring them in 
He did this occasionally in the Old Testament as he brought in people like Rahab and Ruth. But with the coming of Christ, God floods his people with those outside. Those outside of the people of God. And they all become one people. Listen to how Paul says this in Ephesians 2. For through him, Jesus, we both, Jewish believers and Gentile believers, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you, Gentile believers, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, Jacob wants to be buried with the saints who went before him. Why does he want this? Because he believes that their hope and his hope is the same and that they will together experience the fullness of that blessing. You see, you are not just an individual. You are united across all the ages and across geographically the entire globe. You are united with every other person who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's purpose of making all his people throughout all his ages into one body is seen in this. He waits. To, he, won't, he will not raise one of them bodily from the grave until he raises all of them at the same time. When a saint dies, his spirit goes directly to be with the Lord. But his body remains in the ground. Not until the return of Christ will everyone at the same time be raised up together. Not one before another. We will all be raised at the same time. Paul even says, encourage people with these words. <clears throat> Jacob points his kids to the future hope of that resurrection from the dead. The question I have to ask you, are you looking forward to being gathered together with all God's people? Is that something that fills your mind? Paul says, encourage people with these words. And the other question I want to ask is, are you living each day with the hope of a better country, a heavenly one. And is that, that faith in this eternal hope, does it change the way you live today? See, Joseph, he demonstrates his hope by carrying out the wishes of his dad. Look at Genesis 50 verses 1 through 14. Then Joseph fell on his father's face, wept over him, and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. 
So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. For that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I have hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. It's kind of a lengthy little passage. And besides being very, very cool that Jacob is given a royal funeral by Pharaoh, you can imagine if like the, you know, the United States government gave you a funeral with all the, the thrills of that, how honoring that would be. Pretty cool thing. We see in these verses, and this is the most important part of them, that Joseph points his fellow Egyptians to the Abrahamic hope. Joseph points his fellow Egyptians to the Abrahamic hope. You see, the Egyptians had a hope in the afterlife, but it was a false hope. You know what they believed? They believed that the only way that you could experience the resurrection was that if you lived in the land of Egypt and were buried in the land of Egypt. <clears throat> you can see how Joseph's request would smack them right in the face of that. Instead of being in the land of Egypt and trying to pursue a resurrection according to the Egyptian beliefs, Joseph goes to the Pharaoh and says, I want my dad to be buried back in Canaan. Not only would this burial in Canaan have been a witness to the Egyptians, it would also be a witness to the Canaanites. How strange it would have been for a Canaanite to see this large Egyptian retinue accompanying a small band of shepherds as they buried one man in a cave in their homeland. 
doesn't say this, but this is the stuff that fuels legend. This is them going, this makes no sense to us. Egyptians who don't even believe that burial should take place outside of their homeland, actually taking someone else and mourning for them in another land. You see, the faith of Jacob and the faith of Joseph actually caused them to do things that just didn't make sense. There was no, it wasn't, it wasn't convenient to do this. It required lots of effort, lots of, man, why would you want to take the time to go into so much detail about a funeral? But they believed that they were symbolically pointing the people around them and to their own hearts their hope in the resurrection. Now to be fair, there are countless ways for us to live our lives here in this world uh, that demonstrate that we're hoping for an eternal world. Every time that you surrender your heart to God, telling Him that you want His will above your own will, you are seeking an eternal blessing. Think about that. Every time you say no to a sin, you're basically saying to God, I care more about the eternal blessing than whatever it is I'm seeking right now. So that's one way. Every Sunday, when you take time out of your life to rest from your labors, to worship the Lord, your Lord and Savior, you are trusting an eternal blessing every time you do that. See, the Lord's Day is not something that's just, oh, whatever, do it or don't do it. When you say, God, the worship of you is more important than whatever it is I want to seek on this day, you are demonstrating a faith in eternal blessing. When we choose to love our enemies and refuse to take revenge on those who hurt us, we are trusting an eternal blessing. There's all kinds of ways that you can do this, but we should not forget in this passage, because I think it's foremost in this passage, that there are symbolic ways that we can point others to our eternal hope. So much of this chapter is really only symbolically did it really matter that Jacob was buried in this cave to experience the resurrection to eternal life? I don't think so. Right? But what he wanted to do was of symbolic value. And for some reason in our world today, we just don't care anything about symbolism anymore. And I don't think it's a good thing. Historically, churches had graveyards next to them. We don't have one here, like most newer churches. We haven't really made that a priority. Not saying we need to do that. I'm just, just expressing this. But the reason why the churches had graveyards connected to them was because they wanted the saints who were in the pews living to be joined together with the saints who had gone before them. And to believe that they were having a common hope in one resurrection together from the grave. I do think that because we don't have any symbolism of this in our society, we are losing 
are this connection. We no longer understand the connection that we have with the saints who have gone before us or the ones that will come after us. Funerals, memorial services, great ways to express our faith in the coming resurrection. Notice that Joseph's faith in the covenant promises does not prevent him from grieving. They gather and they lament and grieve the loss of the one that they love. And I'm telling you that that lamentation was held simultaneously with their hope in the resurrection. It wasn't one or the other. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. We are no longer slaves to our fear of death. But death still remains an enemy to be grieved over. I understand and do not condemn what are commonly called celebrations of life. But I do take issue with anyone who says that it is not appropriate for a Christian to lament and grieve the loss of a loved one. Everybody grieves differently. Some will grieve longer. Some will grieve more. That's not the issue. But even if you have a sure hope in eternal life, you can still grieve. Jesus wept when Lazarus was in the tomb. Life in this world is precious. It is to be celebrated. But I do not think that we should celebrate this life as much as we should have our hope cast into the hope of eternal life and the celebration that will be there. Moving on, like I said, you got a funeral, then you got something in the middle, then you got another funeral. So 15 to 21. I'm just going to go ahead and read them all together. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept. When they spoke to him, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke Kindly to them. Now, these verses are not only about the fears that we have among brothers. In the brothers' fear, we see our ongoing struggle to experience peace with God. Life must have been pretty good for the brothers during the last years of Joseph's life. Joseph 
was probably not with his brothers. He's off doing government business most of the time, so they don't have a lot of interaction with him. And when you don't have a lot of interaction with somebody, old fears begin to creep in. What if Joseph has only been kind to us because dad's around? What if now his true anger will come out? And because they know that they have truly done evil against Joseph, they come up with their plan, don't they? Instead of trusting Joseph's word that he has forgiven them and that he loves them, remember he shed tears earlier, they come up with a scheme. They actually make up words that their dad never said. They send a message to Joseph. They try to pressure Joseph. They try to manipulate, manipulate Joseph to be kind to them. And what does Joseph do? He weeps. He weeps. I believe that our Heavenly Father reacts in a similar way. When we try to do things in our lives to somehow manipulate God into giving us an assurance that He will forgive us and that He loves us more than what has already been done in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it not true that we still have a fear of God's wrath? Not, not totally bad. We all do have to face Him. But perfect love drives out that fear. The brothers come before Joseph and they bow down before him. This, this fulfills the dream that Joseph had early in his life. But Joseph's like, man, I'm not in the place of God. Don't do this. We are brothers. Joseph says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph acknowledges the hurt that these brothers have caused him. He even acknowledges that they have to stand before God. But you know what he doesn't acknowledge? And this is the key. He does not acknowledge that their evil actions have somehow ruined God's intentions of blessing. That blessing cannot be harmed. It cannot be corrupted. It cannot be taken away. And this is one of the most important lessons that you will ever get from this passage. If God is going to fulfill His covenant promises of blessing, then they cannot be dependent upon the actions of evil men. You understand that? People can take away joys in your life. They can hurt you. They can rob you. They can steal from you. They can do all sorts of things. But you know what they cannot do? They cannot hinder one ounce of the eternal blessing that is yours in Christ. In fact, even when they hurt you, they are serving your Lord and Savior, who is intending those very actions for your good 
and the promotion of that blessing coming about. I don't want to get into a philosophical discussion on God's sovereignty and, and man's freedom. Happy to do that after the lessons today if you want to talk about it. I love talking about these things. But this is what you must accept. If you want to be a, uh, have any faith, any, any hope, any assurance, any peace in this life, you have to accept that when God promises blessing, there is no one or nothing in the entire universe that can prevent him from bringing that blessing about. And if you deny that, you are denying your hope of eternal blessing. Joseph uses these truths to comfort his brothers. He says, look, uh, yeah, you, you really did some really bad things to me, but I get the eternal blessing. Nothing can separate him from the love of God. Many of you have been hurt by people around you. Many of you have even been hurt by other people in the church. Nothing will quench your anger for these wrongs more than knowing that God is absolutely sovereign even over these evil actions. He is using them for your eternal good and for his glory. Now, I'm not denying that these brothers need to deal with their sin. We've talked about that in the past. They need to repent, and they have repented. more so than just a change in their heart, what reduces the, the need for anger and revenge is the, the understanding that God is doing his good purposes even through the evils done to us. Verses 22 to 26. So Joseph remained in Egypt, and he and his father's house Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made his sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and shall carry, you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. <clears throat> Joseph says that God will visit you. What he means is that God is going to help you when you go through great trials. That's really what the word visit means. He's not just going to be there. He's, you're going to go through great trials, and God's not going to forget you, and he's going to bring you back to himself up out of this land. Even though that this physical promised land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River is the, the land of which they're looking forward to to bring them up out of Egypt, that promised land itself is really only a foreshadow of the eternal promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. You see, Joseph knows this. He demonstrates his confidence that God would bring his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. But he 
is not simply looking to their future. He's looking to his future. Do you see that? He says, oh, no, I'll be with you in spirit. I'll be looking down from heaven. No, he says, take my bones. Why does he want his bones taken? Because he believes that those same bones will be raised up out of the dead. His hope is in a resurrection. It's clear to him. Could, is, would, would God have raised up his bones if they remained in Egypt? Yeah. He could get you know, sunk in the bottom of the ocean and God could raise them up. Doesn't matter. But symbolically, he's telling his people, I am going to enjoy the eternal promised blessing with you. And so some conclusions for us today. Live your life hoping in the eternal blessing. Live your life hoping in the eternal blessing. Enjoy good things in this life. Be thankful for the good things God gives you, but don't set your hopes upon them. Secondly, rejoice that no evil done against you in this life can diminish in the least the fullness of blessing that is yours in Christ. Cannot be robbed, ever. Your, your inheritance in this life can be taken away, but that eternal blessing can never be robbed. Third, may God's perfect love for you in Christ quench every fear that you have of his wrath. Every time you fear that God will be angry to you at the end, look to Christ. Let his perfect love wash over you. And fourthly, point those around you and those who come after you to your eternal hope. Hebrews 11, 39 and 40, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made you realize Abraham is maybe perfect in soul, but he's not perfect entirely, body and soul. And God is waiting to give him that perfection until he gives it to him with you. All of this is brought together in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear this from Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham." Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to get rid of God's anger against you so that he could give you blessing. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, 
He is able to help those who are being tempted. There is no other blessing in Scripture that matters. The blessing first promised in Genesis 3, but then given to Abraham, we partake of this eternal blessing. And I would tell you that if you are not trusting in that blessing, you must trust in that blessing. The only way that we can ever have a hope in that eternal blessing is to place your trust in Jesus Christ. His resurrection, His resurrection from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, you are, your entire hope is grounded in His resurrection from the dead. He is the guarantee of your hope of eternal blessing. Amen.